Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Uh, Every week on Deadline DC, we talk to the progressive people and players who drive our nation's politics and policy forward. Uh, The show, I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political commentator for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. If you have any ideas about uh, the show, or if you have want to find out anything more about my political polling company, Bannon Communications, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon, all one word. This week on Deadline DC, we have a really big show for you. In the first half hour, our guest is John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for the nation. Uh, He's here to talk about politics. Then in the second half hour, we'll talk about economics with Dr. Robert Shapiro. First though, we have this uh, clip. Uh, We're gonna talk about the California recall election. And we have this clip from Governor Gavin Newsom who survived a challenge to his uh, tenure as governor of California. And I think about just in the last you know, few days and the former president put out saying this election was rigged. Now, democracy is not a football. You don't throw it around. It's more like a, I don't know, antique vase. You could drop it and smash it in a million different pieces. And that's what we're capable of doing if we don't stand up to meet the moment and push back. I I said this many, many times on the campaign trail. You know, we may have defeated Trump, but Trumpism is not dead in this country. The big lie, January 6th insurrection, all the voting suppression efforts that are happening all across this country, what's happening, the assault on fundamental rights, constitutionally protected rights of women and girls. It's a remarkable moment in our nation's history. That was uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California. Uh, Now it's Nichols time. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, the national affairs correspondent for the nation. The nation is home to tenacious muckraking, provocative commentary. The nation empowers its readers to fight for justice and equality for all. John is the author of many books, including his most recent, which is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. His Twitter handle is Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, Nichols Uprising. John, welcome back to Deadline DC. It's great to be with you. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Let's start with uh, last week, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, who we just heard from, survived a recall election. Uh, He won uh, the right to serve the remainder of his term, which sounds interesting, actually, uh, by a decisive margin. Uh, The Republican opposition crashed and burned. 
Uh, now, uh, a lot of people, including myself, were cheered by uh, Newsom's decisive victory. Uh, now, we all know California is a bright blue state. Uh, so is there anything we can learn from a decisive victory in a very strongly democratic state? Or should we just move on to the next one? No, we can learn an immense amount. This is a highly significant election and the results uh, tell us a great deal about what's possible in politics at this point, but also uh, what some of the tripwires are. The thing to understand is that the recall effort against Newsom sought to take advantage of the rules in California. And that's the first thing to recognize as regards Republicans at this point. They are looking for vulnerabilities in election rules, election structures that will allow them to achieve wins, quote unquote, that they would not otherwise achieve. In California, they have a mess of a recall system. Uh, it allows you to get on the ballot for a recall very, very easily, which I don't mind that much. But then once you've done so, it sets up two elections. First, an election to decide whether to keep the person being recalled. And then second, another election to determine who you will replace the recalled individual if the majority vote in the first one to remove. You're already understanding the complexity just as I describe it. And the Republicans hoped that they could fly under radar, have a low turnout in a complex election process, get enough people to vote to recall Newsom, and then with a tiny portion of the electorate, install a right-wing governor. And they, polls suggest they were actually doing pretty well at this until late in the game when Larry Elder, the conservative talk radio host, stepped up and uh, became the clear Republican front runner on that second vote. That allowed Newsom and the Democrats to uh, generate what was something much more akin to a normal campaign, a Democratic candidate against a right-wing Republican. Once that happened, Newsom took off. And so the two lessons you take away from California are first, the Republicans are gonna keep trying to game the system. They will do it in all sorts of ways. You shouldn't just focus on voter suppression. You should also understand that there's a lot of other strategies that they will use to try and you know, upend Democrats, even in places where Democrats are relatively solid, where voting patterns tend to be very democratic, such as California. Second, um, the way to beat the Republicans in 2022 uh, is to make it clear that this is a competition between a Democrat and a Trump Republican. And that's what happened in California. Larry Elder uh, really ran as sort of an uber Trump type candidate. And that made it very easy for Newsom to excite and engage the Democratic electorate, gener generate a big turnout and win. Um, that's going to be a reality, not just in California, but in states across the country in 2022. Okay. Uh, I uh, spent some time looking at the exit polls in California. The number one issue uh, for California voters, uh, as they participated in the recall, uh, was the pandemic. Uh, that was the number one issue for California voters. And 80%, 80% of the voters who were concerned about the pandemic, which was the number one issue, uh, voted no on the recall. 
Uh, do you think that will have any effect nationally on uh, encouraging some people, maybe some governors, uh, to be aggressive fighting the Delta variant? Or is it just a lesson that Democrats will pay attention to and Republicans like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott uh, will just blithely ignore? A couple of things there. First, uh, it's important to understand there are some Republican governors um, who will uh, be likely be on the ballot in uh, 2022, who have been pretty aggressive in taking on COVID. This is one of the places where the Republican Party has divided uh, at a very intense level. Uh, in New England, you see Republican governors like Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who've been, you know, not perfect. I've actually written things that have been critical of Baker, but uh, by and large, better, you know, certainly than what Donald Trump was. And, and comparable, at least in some cases, to Democrats. Uh, you've got, you know, the governor in Maryland, the governor in Vermont, Republicans, uh, governor in Ohio, a Republican, uh, DeWine, who have been, you know, more responsive uh, to the need to address COVID. Um, I think the California result will encourage uh, Republicans like that to, you know, double down on what they've been doing. It makes sense. It's clear politically that for a November election, uh, being good on COVID matters, being on top of it. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of Republicans who don't, because this has become the real, uh, you know, kind of primary election dividing line in the Republican Party. And it's clear there's a fanatical base that uh, is angry about masks, angry about vaccinations, very resistant, very hesitant. And uh, if we understand that, if we recognize that, then that becomes a big deal for Democrats, because in a number of states around the country, it will be possible for Democrats to run on a strong COVID message and say, look, uh, this is a lingering problem. It, it may, by November of 2022, be less of an issue, but it will probably still be a, a concern and something that people are conscious of. And so for Democrats, I think doubling down on the issue, going deeper, making a big deal about it uh, matters. And I think you're going to see that in Florida, as an example, where a couple of Democratic candidates are running. John, we're going to go to a brief break now uh, for our radio listeners. If you're uh, watching us on TV, uh, please stay tuned because we're not going anywhere. We'll be right back with more of John Nichols, political affairs correspondent for The Nation and Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for the nation. Uh, if uh, we're back with our radio audience now, uh, if you're in our radio audience and you'd like to see us as well as hear us, you may want to see uh, John Nichols. Whether you want to see me or not is an open question. Uh, you can watch us on Periscope TV at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can watch us on Facebook Live at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live. And you can also see us on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, John, you were just about to finish a thought on the uh, uh, this year's gubernatorial races before I rudely interrupted you. Well, you weren't rude at all. And uh, 
But we were talking kind of in the break about uh, the the 2021 races, and there are two gubernatorial races this year, one in Virginia, which is closer with Terry McAuliffe as the Democratic nominee, one in uh, New Jersey, which is uh, looks to be a, a, an easier race for Governor Murphy up there. Uh, and what I would say is, are you still there, Brad? I am here, but uh, we've lost our video for you, John. All right. Well, that's not good. Let's see what we could do to to restabilize or re uh, re up that. I can hear you, so you I can think keep that might walking. help. Uh, not sure what's going on here, Brad. Well, why don't we keep? Uh, uh, why don't you keep can talking? Can you see me now, John? Brad? Are you there? Okay. Sorry, my apologies on the video. Um, so, uh, look, what I was saying is that that uh, it's important to remember that in off-year elections like this, uh, especially following the election of a political party to office, this being the Democrats in this case, the opposition party usually does very, very well. And so what both Murphy in New Jersey and uh, McAuliffe in Virginia are trying to do is to beat the you know off-year curse. Uh, I think there's a lot of good evidence that they can, uh, but this is something that the Democrats can't take casually. And I think that's why, A, they have to do a lot of mobilization, especially in Virginia. B, I think they have to recognize the rising issues at the moment. And as we referenced in the break, um, the real rising issue, especially in Virginia, I think is going to be abortion rights. And coming off the Supreme Court's ruling as regards Texas, my sense is that um, a, a focus on defending abortion rights is very probably, although not certainly, uh, going to to win it for McAuliffe. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for the nation. John, you there? I am here. Okay. Uh, well, uh, you brought up my next uh, the next subject I want to talk about uh, with Texas. Uh, we had uh, a report yesterday in several news outlets that uh, former congressman and Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke had decided uh, he was going to run and would announce his candidate's candidacy officially uh, later this year. Now, Texas is kind of a frustrating place and even more frustrating lately. Uh, there's a surge uh, in the minority population. Uh, if you look at the uh, 2020 uh, census estimates, uh, the largest Hispanic uh, increase in population uh, occurred in Texas more so than any other state. The largest Asian increase in population occurred in Texas compared to the other 49 states. Uh, African-Americans had the second biggest population growth in the nation in Texas. And we keep talking about uh, Democrats breaking the Republican stranglehold on the Long Star State. Uh, is next year the year it might happen? Yes, it is the year that it might happen, but it's certainly not assured. The reason it might happen is a variety of issues that have come into play that might actually shift the kind of last group of voters that need to be shifted in order, order to make this happen and also contribute to a mobilization. 
On one side, you've got the abortion issue, and the abortion issue has the potential to uh, shift suburban women who have already been shifting somewhat uh, to the Democratic Party in Texas and states around the country, uh, and to really move more of them. If that happens, that could be very, very helpful to the Democrats. But it's not the only issue there, and I think it's all important to recognize that under Governor Greg Abbott, Texas has gone from disaster to disaster. Uh, just a matter of months ago, they had the, the power grid kind of meltdown, uh, which caused terrible crisis across the state. It was clearly the result of, frankly, a very uh, corrupt and, and mangled system that the Republicans have uh, managed to the advantage of their campaign contributors and, frankly, to the advantage of the corporations with which they're aligned. If Beto O'Rourke runs for governor and runs as a candidate who is committed to a, um, you know, just sensibly running the state government and not running it in the sort of corrupt and dysfunctional way that Republicans have for so long, and also uh, does emphasize a, a, more, a more rational approach uh, to social issues, particularly reproductive rights, uh, there's a real potential there. Again, you're talking about the midterm curse, so to speak, which is that usually the party of uh, the sitting president does not do all that well in midterms. So we have to you know, look for scenarios where this might be a different situation uh, because of the extremism of the Republican Party and frankly, because of some failings uh, by particular political figures in Texas led by Governor Abbott. Uh, but I think O'Rourke's getting into the race is a huge deal. And I also think he was cautious about getting into the race. He, he wasn't rushing to do it for much of this year. So my sense is that he is doing it based on polling, based on you know some real sense that this is a possible race. And uh, I, I do not underestimate Beto O'Rourke in Texas. I watched him campaign in 2018 there, and I was powerfully struck by what a very capable candidate he was, and frankly, by the coalition that he built, one that came within a whisker of defeating Ted Cruz. Yeah, uh, and there's also a wild card. We have uh, actor Matthew McConaughey <laughs> who's talking about running for governor. Yeah, but that's probably, the truth of the matter is, if McConaughey gets in, that probably helps Greg Abbott. Um, because uh, one presumes that McConaughey draws from a uh, a portion of voters who are not in the hard right Republican base. And because Texas does have a lot of very hard right Republican voters, um, the idea of dividing the electorate, having you know McConaughey in there and O'Rourke in there, um, I think would probably be something that Abbott would like. Okay. Uh, John, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Hope you can come back soon. Our guest in this half hour was John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Uh, we'll be back in our second half hour on Deadline DC. We'll be talking to Dr. Robert Shapiro, an economist who will give us an update on the status of the economy and talk about the need for Build Back Better. Uh, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Deadline DC with Brad Bannon after these messages with Dr. Robert Shapiro, and we'll talk about the economy and economic issues. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to Headline DC. 
Uh, but before we get to our guest, Dr. Robert Shapiro, we're going to hear this from President Biden. Fifty-five most profitable corporations in America paid zero in federal income taxes on what amounted to $40 billion in profit. Not a penny. That's not right. My economic plan will change that. Not punish anybody, just make them pay their fair share. But my Republican friends in Congress don't want to change the law. So what are they doing? They're attacking me and my plan, which is fine. But if you're going to have a debate, let's have an honest debate. My Republican friends are attacking my plan, saying it's big spending. Let me remind you, these are the same folks who just four years ago passed the Trump tax cut, totaling almost $2 trillion in tax cuts, a giant giveaway to the largest corporations in the top 1%. And listen to this. Almost none of that $2 trillion tax cut was paid for. It just ballooned the federal deficit. In fact, the unpaid, unpaid bills ranked up, uh, racked up by the, uh, the last administration are projected to increase the national debt by more than $8 trillion over time. What I'm proposing is totally different from that approach for three reasons. First, my plan is paid for. It's fiscally responsible because our investments are paid for by making sure that corporations, wealthy Americans pay their fair share. Second, we're not going to raise taxes on anyone making under $400,000. That's a lot of money. Some of my liberal friends are saying it should be lower than that. But only corporations and people making over $400,000 a year are going to pay any additional tax. And third, not only will no one making under $400,000 see their taxes go up, the middle class are going to get some tax cuts, some breaks. My plan benefits ordinary Americans, not those at the top who don't need the help. It's a historic middle-class tax cut, cutting taxes for over 50 million families. That was uh, President Biden uh, talking about his uh, tax plan uh, that would uh, fund his uh, Build Back Better program. This half hour of Deadline DC is brought to you by Bannon, my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Ironically, President Biden's job rating has declined as the economy has inclined. Cash-strapped working families needed a big boost, and President Biden deserves credits for his efforts to fix the failed Trump economy. Passage of the big and bold Build Back Better bill would continue and deepen the recovery that's already started. The new law would also guarantee that he gets credit for the success in turning the page on Donald Trump's failure to fight the pandemic, which kneecapped the economy. You can read the rest of this column and all my columns for The Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon, an economic advisory firm and a senior fellow of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. 
He is an internationally known economist who has advised several prominent national Democrats on economic policy. He was also Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. Uh, Dr. Shapiro, welcome back to Deadline DC. Uh, it's a pleasure, Brad. Uh, first start, could you give us a status update on the condition of the economy? Where generally is the economy right now? The economy is doing uh, is doing well. It's not doing quite as well as we thought it would a couple months ago, and that's because the Delta surge uh, is dampening economic activity. And um, however, uh, I think the administration has <clears throat> finally put in place a really robust plan to get to um, 75 to 80 percent of all Americans vaccinated, which is what we need to be able to go back to kind of normal life. Uh, I think the president hoped that this could happen without mandates, and he was wrong. Um, and so he's course corrected and put in place mandates, which is what we need, and mandates which are uh, the norm when you have epidemics <laughs> or when you have highly infectious diseases that can affect very large numbers of people um, and with very serious consequences. We don't do it for all infectious diseases, but we certainly do it for epi epidemics. And I think if the administration it can be criticized for anything, it was for its optimism that uh, that we could achieve that 75 to 80 percent of all Americans vaccinated without a mandate. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, you know, one of the things actually we talked about, we talked about the uh, lessons we could learn from the California recall in the first half hour with John Nichols. Uh, but uh, one of the things that's pretty clear looking at the exit polls uh, from the California recall is that the biggest issue among Californians who voted in the recall uh, was the pandemic. And 80 percent of the Californians who voted in the recall uh, who were concerned about the pandemic uh, voted uh, to retain Gavin Newsom. So I think that's uh, as well as learning an economic lesson, uh, we can learn a political lesson, too, about uh, the need for strong, aggressive measures uh, to fight the rise of the uh, Delta variant. Well, and it's a, I, I mean, that's absolutely correct. I, I, I agree. And if you look at the national polls, the fact is Biden was elected um, to be two things. One, to end the pandemic, and two, to not be Donald Trump. And, um, and the fact is that uh, they underestimated what would be required for the first, given the really unprecedented uh, kind of fantasy world that Trump's base has lived in with regard to the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I think he was, look, Joe Biden has always been a very optimistic kind of guy. Well, 
This time he needed to be a little more realistic or cynical, frankly. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on. There are a number of things, of course. Uh, right now, Congress is battling over the uh, the president's uh, proposal uh, to uh, rebuild the infrastructure. Uh, one of the things that's going on, which relates to that, is right now there is a battle. Uh, especially in the Senate, over the debt limit. Could you explain that to our viewers and listeners? Because I think it's something that most people don't understand and they're going to hear a lot about uh, in the next couple of weeks. Certainly. Um, the debt limit is a limit on the uh, amount of Treasury securities that the Treasury can issue in order to finance deficits and to refinance debt which has been, uh, which is matured and is being rolled over. And it's really about um, uh, paying for the commitments that we've already made. And um, it has, this used to be a, a non-controversial issue <laughs> for, many decades. Everyone recognized that, of course, you had to raise the debt limit, because if you didn't, the government would not be able to pay its bills. And not only that, if it couldn't pay its bills, then it would, in effect, begin defaulting on debt. And by defaulting on debt, uh, interest rates would rise sharply because foreign investors would lose confidence in the U.S. government's willingness to pay for its spending. And so uh, it, it, it has become a kind of occasion for the opposition party to extract some concessions. That was what happened with uh, Obama. And, okay. but uh, I'm going to have to interrupt you, Rob, but we're going to uh, break our guest in this half hour of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon is the noted economist, Dr. Robert Shapiro. We'll be back after these messages. And uh, for our radio listeners, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. For our TV listeners and oh, viewers, uh, we're not going anywhere, so don't you either. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Brad Bannon, our guest in this half hour to talk about the economy and build back better is Dr. Robert Shapiro, uh, who uh, is an expert on economics uh, and uh, occasionally comes on Deadline DC to try to make sense of this, which uh, some people call the dismal science uh, to our listeners. Uh, okay, now let, let's get this, uh, let me try to get this straight. Uh, there are two competing infrastructure proposals. One is a $1.2 trillion package that was passed by a bipartisan majority in the Senate. 
Now, to me, it looks like that package is heavy on what you call traditional infrastructure, uh, bridges, roads, mass transit, airports, and light on everything else that's important. Uh, then you have the president's proposal, uh, which is about three times as expensive, $3.5 trillion over 10 years, uh, which has the traditional infrastructure things in it, uh, but also has its dynamic package uh, with uh, provisions to fight climate change, uh, to provide for human infrastructure. Uh, can you explain the differences between the two packages, Rob? Certainly. The first package, it is called $1.2 trillion. It's actually, uh, it is that size, but about half the money is actually coming from funds that went to the states for various pandemic-related programs like rent relief, for example, and uh, the states didn't use the money. So they're repurposing, half of that is repurposed money. The rest is very traditional infrastructure, which we need, um, roads, bridges. It also includes a, a lot of money for the electric grid, to modernize the electric grid. Um, as well as broadband, hopefully universal broadband. Um, the second bill, the reconciliation bill, um, that, that looks mainly at um, uh, what are called human infrastructure, things which make people more productive. So for example, um, guaranteed pre-K education, um, no-cost community college tuition, um, child care support so that people can uh, know their children will be taken care of well so they can work. Um, these are as well as a lot of climate-related provisions. Uh, and this is a, whereas the first is a fairly traditional um, effort, the one incidentally which um, failed in the last two administrations. Um, so it's a real achievement. Uh, the second is a expansion of the government's role in uh, supporting people's um, lives and in particular the education and the trade-offs between family life and uh, work life which are so difficult for so many people and it's it's very ambitious they're really you know within the Democratic caucus in both the House and the Senate and frankly, there's as much difficulty with this bill in the House as there is in the Senate. Um, the difficulty is not over the fundamental concept that this is, uh, this is, uh, ha has become necessary responsibilities for government, but rather over the initial dimensions of it. Uh, I think if you, if the administration um, 
agreed to a two and a half trillion dollar package, for example, uh, you wouldn't have any problem from the moderates. You would have some problems from the progressives, uh, the progressive caucus on the left. And this, this highlights the fundamental challenge that faces Joe Biden. And that is he has a very ambitious agenda when he has an effective majority of one in the Senate because of the vice president's ability to to break ties and an effective majority of about three in the House. You know, the last time any a president tried to be this ambitious, it was Lyndon Johnson and FDR. And they both had enormous Democratic majorities in both houses. So this is a very difficult uh, nut to crack, uh, given the close uh, the closeness of the majority. And frankly, the moderates and the progressives have got to both accept that they will not get everything they want and be prepared to accept what they can get which will be enormous. It just will not be as enormous as Bernie Sanders would have liked. Okay. Uh, now, let, let's say that a package passes. Uh, we've got, let's say it's about two and a half trillion dollars. Uh, now, it seems to me there are really three parts to this. You've got your traditional infrastructure things, roads, bridges. Uh, you've got what, you know, what is called provisions for human infrastructure, and I would say guaranteed uh, uh, K through 12 uh, pre-K education is part of that. And then you've got the money in there basically to fight climate change and to re, you know, make the make, as some people say, build it back greener. Uh, what would a two and a half trillion dollar package as opposed to a three point three and a half trillion dollar package mean sacrificing? Well, frankly, you don't need to sacrifice anything. Okay. You if you phase everything in much more gradually. Um, and that would put some of the 3.5 trillion beyond the 10 year budget window. Um, so, so you could have a $2.5 trillion package over eight or 10 years. That was a three and a half trillion dollar package over 12 or 13 years. Uh, so that's one way to do it. Um, the other is, you know, there are, um, like any large piece of legislation, this one includes some, some provisions that benefit very influential groups and very influential industries. We, we could probably save, I don't know, a couple hundred billion dollars by eliminating them, it might make it harder to pass, however. Um, the other thing which could really create a kind of boundary on this, and I think it's probably the right boundary, is um, uh, to approach it through the revenues. I think if you had three and a half trillion dollars in revenues 
that you could get Democrats to agree on, they'd be happy to spend the three and a half trillion dollars, including Mansion and Cinema. Okay. Um, but getting the agreement on taxes is as hard as getting the agreement on spending. Uh, my guess is, um, if anything were to fall out, it is most likely to be the education agenda. Uh, because, and that would be terrible, but it is the least organized. It has the least well-organized constituency. Um, and, you know, there are also very important healthcare provisions in this bill um, that expand Obamacare supports and, um, uh, and also expand benefits received under uh, Medicare. Um, I think we could, you know, look, I think we should have those benefits, but um, uh, Medicare has done fine without them for a long time. We could put it off a little. Okay. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on Deadline CC to try to explain uh, the murky uh, area of economics to our viewers and listeners. And I'm sure there's going to be much more about this, and we hope to have you back soon. Anytime. I want to thank, thank you, Rob. I want to thank all our guests, uh, John Nichols from The Nation, economist Dr. Robert Shapiro, and a special shout out to our intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Make sure you listen to Leslie. She'll be back tomorrow. Be safe and be strong in these troubled times. And make sure you turn into Deadline DC every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern time or the podcast anytime on periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. <laughs>